of you are welcome in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, just uh, really one announcement for the ladies. If you signed up for the um, conference, just remind you that it's this Saturday. It's either some of you will be here in the sanctuary, others will be tuning in uh, at home. But uh, don't forget about that. And then is, did everyone get your communion cups as you came in? If you don't, okay, that's fine. And let's uh, prepare now our hearts for worship. I give the call to worship. Let me know. I, I, I'm, I'm watching and I see some come in a little bit when no one's in the narthex. We're going to have communion. If you did not get your communion cups, you'll step back in the narthex. You can get those cups. And also the bulletins as well. And uh, let me also greet them. I've greeted everyone in the sanctuary, but we have brothers and sisters at home. And so let me greet you as well. I'm glad to have you joining us with worship as well. 
for a call to worship, I'm going to read from Romans 11. The first hymn we're going to sing um, is a hymn that means a lot to me. It was written by uh, James Montgomery Boyce, who's sort of my mentor up in Philadelphia. And he based this uh, hymn on the passage I'm going to read from Romans 11. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. And how inscrutable his ways. And we come and we worship you and give you praise, our great God, for the depth of your riches and wisdom and knowledge. Your ways are not our ways, neither are your thoughts our thoughts. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are your ways and our ways, and your thoughts than our thoughts. And we humbly come and now give you adoration and praise and thanksgiving. We come to you by faith in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we pray for that anointing of your Holy Spirit who is here. uh, So that in all that we do in our worship, that it will be honoring to you. That it will be pleasing to you as we draw near to you. In Christ's name, amen. Let's stand and sing together. Give praise to God.
Confession of Faith, we'll be reading from the Heidelberg Catechism. Christian, what is your only comfort in life and death? That I am not my own, but belong body and soul, in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood, and has set me free from the tyranny of the devil. He also watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. In fact, all things must work together for my salvation. Because I belong to him, Christ, by his Holy Spirit, assures me of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for him. What must you know to live and die in the joy of this comfort? Three things. First, how great my sin and misery are. Second, how I am set free from all my sins and misery. Third, how I am to thank God for such a deliverance. Let us pray now together the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Amen. Our Father, we give you praise that you are the one who dwells in heaven, that you remain seated upon your throne as our creator and king. And we have come to, to worship you and to give you praise and acknowledge uh, that we belong to you. We thank you that you have sent our Lord Jesus Christ to us, that he has taken on our very flesh, and in that flesh he has won the victory for us upon that cross. We thank you that because he left uh, his place in heaven, came here upon this earth, that he has so made it now, that we have become your people, that we ourselves are destined for heaven. We give you praise for your Holy Spirit whom you have sent to dwell within us, to awaken us, to give us new life, to give us ears to hear the gospel, the faith to believe, to lead us to repentance of our sins. We thank you that he shall remain in us and he will carry on that work in us to completion until that day that we shall appear before you. Oh, we give you praise that God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit has been at work in our salvation, remains at work in our preservation, and will lead us uh, to yourself. We pray, our God, that your, for your kingdom to come, the return of our Lord Jesus Christ. We give you thanks that when he came, he did establish his kingdom here. We thank you that his Holy Spirit now continues to spread that kingdom and that we have been made members, citizens of that kingdom, that you will preserve us, you will hold on to us, and may we ever keep focus and obedient to be good servants of your kingdom. We pray that we will do your will, 
here upon this earth as it is done in heaven by your servants, the angels. We pray that we will glorify you, honor you in all circumstances. We pray, our Father, for you to provide for us our daily bread. We pray that you would provide all that we need, that we may again have peace, we may have comfort in you and in Christ alone, that you will strengthen our faith, that you will feed us this morning by your word, that you will feed us by your sacrament, so that we will go forth ever stronger in our faith, ever more assured of the hope that we have as Christians. We pray, our Father, for your provisions for our brothers and sisters in difficult times. For those facing illness, we pray for their healing and your sustaining them. Those who are facing difficult times, and perhaps in their families, pray that you would heal, strain relationships. Those having difficulties, and perhaps in school, or in the workplace, in their communities, and among their neighbors. All the more we pray that you may sustain, feed their faith, so all the more again that they will live for you in obedience to you. Forgive us of our debts. Our debts are many as we either have just failed to live up to your standards that are before us, or we have actively transgressed them. And we confess this before you and we thank you for that forgiveness that we have in Jesus Christ alone. All the more then may we be uh, as you, have that spirit of mercy and to love those who may be our debtors, who have offended us in some way. May we have that spirit to forgive and to forget. Lead us not into temptation, you know our weaknesses. Deliver us from the evil one who ever seeks to undo us. Deliver us from the dangers and the fears of this world. And we make this prayer acknowledging that to you belongs the kingdom. To you belongs all the power and all the glory forever. In Christ's name, amen. Well, if you'll turn with me in your Bibles now, we're have, or you can use the insert in your bulletin. It also has the text. And we're beginning that great chapter in Hebrews, chapter 11, presents the great roll call of men and women of faith. And so uh, we'll be spending uh, three uh, Sundays in this. You know, I like it. All preachers like it. When listeners to their sermons actually say something that indicate that they have been, that they have been listening. I want you to know, even my wife listens. Just, just last Sunday, she was commenting to me that how, you know, we're building up to the importance of faith, aren't we? And she, she was right. You know, listen again to the last two verses of chapter 10 that we had, had looked at last week. By my, but, but my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed but of those who have faith and and preserve their soul. Faith. Faith is the key ingredient for living life 
that is pleasing to God. It is what is the key ingredient for of persevering to the end. And to reinforce this point now, our author, again, he's going to take us through the Hall of Fame from the Old Testament to demonstrate the role of faith in godly men and women and how it allowed them to persevere. So turn with me now. We're going to look at verse 1. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for the conviction of things not seen. You know, when I was first reading this, I, it, I can see how it comes out as though it's presenting a concept of faith that's like mere wishful thinking or maybe sentimental thinking. You know, like the, that philosophy of the, the power of positive thinking. If you, if you think, if you just believe we can do it, if you... If you believe you can have what you want, then, then it'll come true. Or it's like the power of the, that philosophy of the power of imagination. It doesn't matter whether it's actually real, just imagine it, and it will be like it's real. But our author would not have been familiar with either of these, what are really modern concepts. Uh, he's, he, um, he's a faithful Jew. And so here's what he would have had in his mind. You take hope. He's already actually used this word six times in his letter. And each time he uses it, it is never uh, something like wishful feeling. Okay? It, it might be actually a very, an object. Okay? It's an object in which we place our confidence. So in most cases, when he's using it, it's the promise of God that's founded in Jesus Christ. And it usually refers to the hope of Jesus' return. And that's when we then will receive our inheritance. It's when God's kingdom will be consummated. And typically, when the Bible speaks, the New Testament speaks of the hope of the Christian, that's what it has in mind. Now, may also hope may also be the act of believing in the promise of God. But either way, Either way that you look at it, hope is founded on what is solid, not on what is speculation, not on what is kind of just a mere wishful feeling. And so, in faith, we have assurance of what we hope for, that is the return of Jesus. And because such hope is founded on the promise of God, that's why we have the assurance. Our author's already addressed this. He's already told us, look, two things. God cannot lie. He cannot go back on his promises. And he, by the way, has already fulfilled the first promise of sending Jesus that first time. Now that phrase, the conviction of things not seen. Again, I want to be clear about this. It's not about imagination. It's about spiritual reality. We do not see the spiritual world. We do not see God. We cannot take a a telescope and and look or go out in space and see heaven. Now, the spiritual world, at times, maybe it can break into our senses. It has happened. God causes it to do sometimes. He has sent, we know in Scripture, he has sent angels who have appeared before mortals. But otherwise, we do not perceive the spiritual world with our five senses. 
And that is what our author has in mind. The hope that we hope in, the unseen that we believe in, they are objective realities. And so faith is the assurance and the conviction of these realities. It's not positive thinking. It's not having a good imagination. Faith is trust in objective realities. And these realities are founded on who God is, what He has done and is still doing. And so the first example He gives to us is actually in verse 3. So we're going to skip verse 2 and go to 3. By faith we understand that the universe was created by the Word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. Now he's taking us to Genesis 1. God spoke creation into being. Theologians refer to this uh, as uh, ex nihilo, a creation out of, out of nothing. Again, let's be clear on this. It's not creation out of unseen atoms. It is the creation of atoms out of nothing. Out of nothing but God's utterance. Now again, our author is a Jewish believer. So he understands that before creation existed, there was but God. And it is the one God who then created all physical existence. So let's, again, use him kind of as a case study with this. He knows through the Scriptures. He knows this through the Scriptures. And then it's by faith that he comes to an understanding of this knowledge. Now it's significant here that he uses that term understanding. Okay. He, does, he doesn't say what seemed to be more fitting that we would come to, to trust in this or come to believe in this. But he speaks of understanding. And what he means by that term there is just what we would understand it. A perception. Uh, interpretation, uh, grasping something intellectually. And so with them, Scripture teaches creation of the universe is by God out of nothing. Okay? He now contemplates this knowledge. It's guiding his understanding. And as he reads all of Scripture, he has that thought in mind. As he observes nature, as he just goes through life experiences. He's thinking with that thought in his mind. Perhaps he's well-read. Maybe he's a reader and he reads histories. He reads philosophies. But all the while he has this thought in his mind, God created out of nothing. And as he does so, as he then reads and studies and observes, his understanding develops. So his faith, it leads first of all to understanding. And then as he understands more and and learns and so on, it buttresses his faith because it all starts to make sense. That's what's happening. It's like this. It's, It's like when you were a child and you were made, you remember this, to memorize the multiplication table. You had to recite. Uh, all the way through, at least I did 12 times 12, which I think is 144. 
And you just memorize this again and again until you could just recite it. Well, at some point, what happens? It starts to make sense, the principle of multiplication. So after a while, at least with pencil and paper, not even using a calculator, we can pretty much write it out and we can figure out how to multiply any numbers. So in, in a sense, we had an initial faith from our teacher who made us do those multiplication tables. And as we did it, it then led to understanding. And then once we had the understanding, that all the more buttress our faith in the multiplication table. Well, that's what's happening here with our author. Now, he's bringing up the subject of faith, however, not just because it's an interesting idea, but he wants to exhort his readers. And we know what it is that he wants to exhort his readers, right? Persevere. In this case, persevere through faith. And so verse 2, let's go back to that, is going to set up the point that he will make and then that he's going to give examples. So in verse 2, For by it the people of old received their commendation. And then he's going to take us through these people of old. Now the key word here, the key concept, is commendation. Oftentimes, by the way, if you want to read a book or a chapter in a book, if you just read the first paragraph and you read the last, very often you will discover what is the theme of that book or chapter or essay. It's the same way with here. He's beginning here about commendation. When he comes to the end, he's going to note how all of these exemplary characters were commended through their faith. They were commended by God. They pleased God. So, note that. Faith caused them to persevere. And that's what he wants them to do. But more to the point, faith itself was pleasing to God. And it led them to further please God by their actions. All right. Let's go now through this roll call. And we're going to begin this morning with three characters in the time period leading up to the flood. All right. Look with me in verse 4. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts. And through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. Now, the Genesis 4 account of the story of Cain and Abel, it does not actually state why Abel's sacrifice was acceptable and Cain's was not. And that leads to a number of theories. And you took two or three different commentators, you'd get two or three different ideas about that. But our author is indicating what really made the difference was the matter of faith. Abel offered his in faith. Cain did not. And furthermore, Abel's faith led God to commend him as being righteous. Now, this is very similar to what the Apostle Paul teaches back in Romans in chapter 4. And Paul uses Abraham as the example. Let me read it to you. It's verses 20 to 22. 
No unbelief made Abraham waver concerning the promise of God. But he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his, can listen to this, his faith was counted to him as righteous. And so that faith of Abel counted him as righteous. Our author is saying, look, it still speaks to us. And it still speaks to us now, centuries later. Faith equates with righteousness. The exercise of faith leads God to count that person as righteous in his sight. All right, that's Abel. Let's move to the next person, Enoch, in verses 5 and 6. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death. And he was not found because God had taken him. Now, before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Now, Enoch is a curious character, isn't he, to, to include here. Let me read to you everything we know about him in the Bible. Again, this is down in chapter 4 of Genesis. When Enoch had lived 65 years, he fathered Methuselah. That's interesting to know. Enoch walked with God after he fathered Methuselah 300 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. Now, as I said, Enoch is kind of a curious character to include in here for us, but he would not have been for our author's readers. There were a number of Jewish writings in the intertestamental time, and probably our readers would have been uh, familiar with, uh, who commented uh, on Enoch, and they commented on him approvingly, and they would all uphold him for his righteousness in a wicked age. Now, let me note one other thing here. Again, I just want to remind you, our author, he's got his scriptures in front of him, but he has a Greek version, what we know as the Septuagint. And so some of the phrases, it changes a little bit. And whereas in, in, in our scriptures we have walked with God, what he's reading is he pleased God. And that's what our author, again, is picking up on this. And so, as he did with Abel above, he equates righteousness with faith. And he wants to note here that Enoch would not have been taken up into heaven if he had not been counted righteous. Okay. But he would not have been counted righteous if he had not exercised faith. This is what our author wants to drive into us. Faith is what pleases God. Now, I want you to note the objectivity of the faith. It's not that he has just kind of faith and things are better, that there's something out there. His faith is in God, that God exists, that God rewards those who seek him. Note that phrase, seek him. This would have been a condemnation of, of Enoch's generation. 
as well as that matter of Abel's brother Cain. Their true problem is that they did not actually seek God. There's a revealing in. It's a, it's a verse at the very end of Genesis 4, and it kind of reveals uh, in a positive way for those who are good what was the problem of those who were not truly of faith. What Genesis does after Cain and Abel, it's going to present a, a new genealogical line. After Abel dies, another son is born, Seth. And we're then given who the descendants of Seth are. And after that line is given, we have, after that descendants are given, we're told this. At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. And so this new line of descendants, which is the line that produces Enoch, is one that it was noted for calling upon, for seeking after God, whom they could not yet see, but whom they still believed in by faith. All right, so we've looked at Abel, we've looked at Enoch. Now we're going to move to the character we know best, Noah. Look at me in verse 7. By faith, Noah, uh, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. So here we have Noah who by faith constructs an ark. Now what does our author have to note here particularly about Noah's faith. Okay, for one thing, his faith consisted of believing God well, about an unknown future. Okay. Not merely was he warned, you think about this, of an event that's going to take place relatively far in the future, but he's warned of an event that he just could not have conceived of. I mean, a worldwide flood that's going to wipe out mankind and all land animals. I don't know how much imagination Noah had, but he never would have ever thought about something like this. God has told him, and he believes. Now, furthermore, his faith was reverent. We're told that he constructed an ark in reverent fear. He lived and he acted with an understanding of the holy and the awesome power of God, the Creator. Noah's faith was courageous. He acted in direct contrast to the beliefs and the behavior of his neighbors. His action, and we're told in Second Peter that he also preached, his, his actions and his preaching to them, I mean, these served as condemnation of them, of their ungodly, their unbelieving behavior. And then finally, the point that he makes here, again, is that Noah's faith is equated with righteousness. All right. Let's turn now to the lessons for ourselves. And let's, let's bring all of these examples together. There are four times that our author writes by faith. Here they are again quickly. By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice. By faith, Enoch drew near to God. By faith, Noah constructed an ark. 
So the first thing that we learn here, that's the very first thing, is that faith ought to affect the way that we think. Now look, all of us agree, don't we, that we live in unsettling times? Now the question is, how should our faith affect our thoughts? The Christians that our author was writing to were definitely living in unsettling times. They were dealing with outright persecution. Some had been thrown in prison. Some had had their property confiscated. They certainly were living in a hostile environment. And yet he exhorts them by faith not to be unsettled by, the, by this unsettled time and the circumstances. They, by faith, are to remember. Well, what are they to remember? He's been telling them all through the letter what they need to be thinking about. That their Messiah is God the Son. That He is their sympathetic High Priest. He has forever secured for them salvation in their inheritance. And that kind of faith, he is saying, should comfort them. Such kind of faith should encourage them. Indeed, it should grant them courage. Such faith should cause them all the more to to revere their God, to love their God, to trust Him. Such faith should give them insight into the ways of God as He is building, and He is building, his kingdom on earth. And their future, no doubt, may have seemed precarious to them. But if their father was working in them, I'm sorry, and if their faith is working in them, they should have been seeing a future in which God's kingdom would prevail. So faith should affect their understanding, how they see what is taking place in this world. The second thing faith should do is it should lead to a strong relationship with God. And we see this in the case of Abel and Enoch. Abel was was able to offer an acceptable sacrifice to God. Enoch was able to draw near to God. In each case, faith is the key ingredient to having a relationship with God. Now look, there are things that help our Christian walk. Uh, there are rituals that we can, can do that enhance our worship practices. There are practices that enhance uh, how we, we live each day with God. There are morals that are necessary to follow. But in every case, without corresponding faith, These things, look, they only do not have value. But they enhance anything. They enhance God's anger toward us. Because without proper faith, what we do is we turn these things, these practices into works in which we're trying to earn God's favor. And God will not be our debtor. Without proper faith, we can turn such things to... Basically, to to hide our sins. But God will not be made our fool. Proper faith, proper faith alone, glorifies the majesty of God and humbles us. The true faith, we see our spiritual poverty. 
we see our complete dependence upon the grace of God. And so with such understanding, that kind of understanding, God's glory and majesty of of our humility, of our dependence upon Him, upon Christ, then we may draw near to God. Then we can offer Him acceptable worship. So faith leads should be impacting our understanding. It should lead us into a strong relationship with God. And faith should lead us to obedience. Noah caused him to build an ark on dry land, even while his neighbors are probably considering him a fool. But Noah had a holy, reverent fear of God. And that fear of God was stronger than the fear of man. And so what did he do? He obeyed God. Obedience to God is better than sacrifice to God because obedience demonstrates our faith that God is God. Faith causes us to understand that God is the sovereign God. And so we don't have to figure out whether our actions are going to lead to to such and such aims. We need to only know this. We need to know what God has commanded. And then we obey it. Faith allows us to trust God for the results. And so we see here what faith leads us to do. But what does faith actually gain for us? Well, three things. One, being commended by God. For Abel. We're told he was commended by God for his sacrifice. Because of Abel's faith, God accepted his sacrifice and commended him, actually counted him as righteous. And likewise, it is our faith in Jesus Christ. That is what makes our worship acceptable. We come to God by faith in the name of Jesus Christ by the blood of Jesus Christ. And God then accepts us, He accepts our worship on behalf of His Son. So it leads us to being commended by God. It leads for us, it gains for us, that we are pleasing God. That's what we're told. Enoch, it led to pleasing God. Let me, let me ask this. Let me put this question out for you to understand. What is it that God wants. Well, God wants, yes, to be believed in. But here's what he really wants. He wants to be believed. And if he makes a promise, he wants to be believed that he will fulfill his promise. If he makes plain through his word that he exists, that he has made clear, by the way, man's dilemma that he has made clear that he has acted to save man. And then he makes clear what he has done through his word. He wants to be believed. If he promises salvation to all who will believe in his son, he wants to be believed. He wants to be trusted. He wants us to trust his promises. He wants us to trust in his power to save. He wants us to trust in his sovereignty. 
You see, you see how it all works out? It is faith. It is faith that pleases God. So it is by faith that we are commended by God. It is faith that pleases God. Finally, it is faith that makes us to be righteous before God. For Noah, as it was with Abel, his faith led him to become what? An heir of righteousness. And so it is for us. Romans 1.17 says, In the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith, for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. By faith. And by faith alone can we be accepted by God. Can we be pleasing to God? Can we come before Him as righteous? We give you praise to God, our God, that we may come before you as righteous in your sight because of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we may come before you by faith. We do know you. We believe you. We worship you because we believe you. and We trust you. Nevermore may you continue to work in us that we may live in whatever unsettling times we are called to go forth. We may live by faith in our great God and in our Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Let's stand and sing together the first two verses of how deep the Father's love for us.
We read the words of the institution of the Lord's Supper as it comes to us from 1 Corinthians 11. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. But we have been speaking of the necessity of of living by faith. But having said everything, all the exhortation has just been made. Now I recognize it is hard. It is hard to live by faith. So does our Lord Jesus Christ. He recognizes that as well. And that is why he has given this institution of the Lord's Supper. It is meant to nourish, to build up our faith, that as we receive Jesus Christ spiritually, receive of, the, of, the, of, of his body and, and of his blood spiritually, we're to be built up in our faith. We're to remember Remember what he has done for us, that he has made that one-time, all-sufficient sacrifice for us. And then also to remember this. He is still our high priest. He is even now interceding for us. He has never, never forgotten you. And so he bids you to come. To come and partake and have your faith strengthened, built up again. And this table is, it is not for those who do not know our Jesus Christ, who do not acknowledge him as, as their high priest. But if that should be the case of anyone. Know that it is our ardent prayer that someday you will be at this table with us. This is for his people to build your faith yet again. Let's pray. Our Father, as we partake of, this, of these elements by faith, strengthen that faith. Build us up to remember our Lord Jesus Christ, who has never forgotten us. In his name we pray. Amen. Now, if you'll take your cups and turn to where the little bread part is and be ready for that. Our Lord Jesus Christ, on the night in which he was betrayed, took bread, blessed it, and broke it, and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take eat. This is my body given for you. You'll open up your cups for the for the juice. In the same manner, our Savior also took the cup. And after having given thanks, he gave it to his disciples, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for the forgiveness of sins. Drink all ye of it. We give you praise, our God, for our Lord Jesus Christ, 
We praise you for his incarnation by which he took upon himself our very flesh. And in that flesh made atonement for our sins upon the cross. We thank you that though he died and was buried, yet he rose again in that flesh. And so in his resurrection, we look to our own to come. We thank you that he has ascended on high into heaven, into your very throne room. And there he serves as our high priest, ever interceding for us. We give you praise that someday he shall return again. We believe this by faith, that he shall return again in all of his glory as our great king to consummate his kingdom. And we say, come, Lord Jesus. Amen. Let's stand and close with the last verse of how deep... Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed, and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations, according to the command of the eternal God, to bring about the obedience of faith, to the only wise God be glory forevermore, through Jesus Christ. Amen.